We continue with the final segment of Justice Sotomayor's dissenting opinion in Students for Fair Admissions, Inc., the Harvard College. Picking up with Part 3, Section B2 of the opinion. As noted above, this court suggests that the use of race in college admissions is unworkable because respondents' objectives are not sufficiently measurable, focused, concrete, and coherent. How much more precision is required or how universities are supposed to meet the court's measurability requirement, the court's opinion does not say. That is exactly the point. The court is not interested in crafting a workable framework that promotes racial diversity on college campuses. Instead, it announces a requirement designed to ensure all race-conscious plans fail. Any increased level of precision runs the risk of violating the court's admonition that colleges and universities operate their race-conscious admissions policies with no specified percentages and no specific numbers firmly in mind. Thus, the majority's holding puts schools in an untenable position. It creates a legal framework where race-conscious plans must be measured with precision, but also must not be measured with precision. That holding is not meant to infuse clarity into the strict scrutiny framework. It is designed to render strict scrutiny fatal in fact. Indeed, the court gives the game away when it holds that, to the extent respondents are actually measuring their diversity objectives with any level of specificity, their plans are unconstitutional. The court also holds that Harvard's and UNC's race-conscious programs are unconstitutional because they rely on racial categories that are imprecise, opaque, and arbitrary. To start, the racial categories that the court finds troubling resemble those used across the federal government for data collection, compliance reporting, and program administration purposes, including, for example, by the U.S. Census Bureau. Surely, not all federal grant-in-aid benefits, drafting of legislation, urban and regional planning, business planning, and academic and social studies that flow from census data collection are constitutionally suspect. The majority presumes that it knows better and appoints itself as an expert on data collection methods, calling for a higher level of granularity to fix a supposed problem of over-inclusiveness and under-inclusiveness. Yet, it does not identify a single instance where respondents' methodology has prevented any student from reporting their race with the level of detail they preferred. The record shows that it is up to students to choose whether to identify as one, multiple, or none of these categories. To the extent students need to convey additional information, students can select subcategories or provide more detail in their personal statements or essays. Students often do so. Notwithstanding this court's confusion about racial self-identification, neither students nor universities are confused. 
There is no evidence that the racial categories that respondents use are unworkable. Cherry-picking language from Gruder, the court also holds that Harvard's and UNC's race-conscious programs are unconstitutional because they do not have a specific expiration date. This new durational requirement is also not grounded in law, facts, or common sense. Gruder simply announced a general expectation that the use of racial preferences would no longer be necessary in the future. As even SFFA acknowledges, those remarks were nothing but aspirational statements by the Gruder court. Yet this court suggests that everyone, including the court itself, has been misreading Gruder for 20 years. Gruder, according to the majority, requires that universities identify a specific endpoint for the use of race. Justice Kavanaugh, for his part, suggests that Gruder itself automatically expires in 25 years after either the college class of 2028 or the college class of 2032. A faithful reading of this court's precedents reveals that Gruder held nothing of the sort. True, Gruder referred to 25 years, but that arbitrary number simply reflected the time that had elapsed since the court first approved the use of race in college admissions in Baki. It is also true that Gruder remarked that race-conscious admissions policies must be limited in time, but it did not do so in a vacuum, as the court suggests. Rather than impose a fixed expiration date, the court tasked universities with the responsibility of periodically assessing whether their race-conscious programs are still necessary. Gruder offered as examples sunset provisions, periodic reviews, and experimenting with race-neutral alternatives as they develop. That is precisely how this court has previously interpreted Gruder's command. Gruder's requirement that universities engage in periodic reviews so the use of race can end as soon as practicable is well-grounded in the need to ensure that race is employed no more broadly than the interest demands. That is, it is grounded in strict scrutiny. By contrast, the court's holding is based on the fiction that racial inequality has a predictable cutoff date. Equality is an ongoing project in a society where racial inequality persists. A temporal requirement that rests on the fantasy that racial inequality will end at a predictable hour is illogical and unworkable. There is a sound reason why this court's precedents have never imposed the majority's strict deadline. Institutions cannot predict the future. Speculating about a day when consideration of race will become unnecessary is arbitrary at best and frivolous at worst. There is no constitutional duty to engage in that type of shallow guesswork. Harvard and UNC engage in the ongoing review that the court's precedents demand. They use their data to scrutinize the fairness of their admissions programs to assess whether changing demographics have undermined the need for race-conscious policy and to identify the effects 
both positive and negative, of the affirmative action measures they deem necessary. The court holds, however, that respondents' attention to numbers amounts to unconstitutional racial balancing. But some attention to numbers is both necessary and permissible. Universities cannot blindly operate their limited race-conscious programs without regard for any quantitative information. Increasing minority enrollment is instrumental to the educational benefits that respondents seek to achieve. And statistics, data, and numbers have some value as a gauge of respondents' ability to enroll students who can offer underrepresented perspectives. By removing universities' ability to assess the success of their programs, the court obstructs these institutions' ability to meet their diversity goals. Justice Thomas, for his part, offers a multitude of arguments for why race-conscious college admissions policies supposedly burden racial minorities. None of them has any merit. He first renews his argument that the use of race in holistic admissions leads to the inevitable underperformance by black and Latino students at elite universities because they are less academically prepared than the white and Asian students with whom they must compete. Justice Thomas speaks only for himself. The court previously declined to adopt this so-called mismatch hypothesis for good reason. It was debunked long ago. The decades-old studies advanced by the handful of authors upon whom Justice Thomas relies have major methodological flaws, are based on unreliable data, and do not meet the basic tenets of rigorous social science research. By contrast, many social scientists have studied the impact of elite educational institutions on student outcomes and have found, among other things, that attending a more selective school is associated with higher graduation rates and higher earnings for underrepresented minority students, conclusions directly contrary to mismatch. This extensive body of research is supported by the most obvious data point available to this institution today. The three justices of color on this court graduated from elite universities and law schools, with race-conscious admissions programs, and achieved successful legal careers despite having different educational backgrounds than their peers. A discredited hypothesis that the court previously rejected is no reason to overrule precedent. Justice Thomas claims that the weight of this evidence is overcome by a single more recent article published in 2016. That article, however, explains that studies supporting the mismatch hypothesis yield misleading conclusions, overstate the amount of mismatch, preclude one from drawing any concrete conclusions, and rely on methodologically flawed assumptions that lead to an upwardly biased estimate of mismatch. Notably, this refutation of the mismatch theory was co-authored by one of SFFA's experts, as Justice Thomas seems to recognize. Citing nothing but his own long-held belief 
Justice Thomas also equates affirmative action in higher education with segregation, arguing that racial preferences in college admissions stamp Black and Latino students with a badge of inferiority. Studies disprove this sentiment, which echoes tropes of stigma that were employed to oppose Reconstruction policies. Indeed, equating state-sponsored segregation with race-conscious admissions policies that promote racial integration trivializes the harms of segregation and offends Brown's transformative legacy. School segregation has a detrimental effect on black students by denoting the inferiority of their status in the community and by depriving them of some of the benefits they would receive in a racially integrated school system. In sharp contrast, race-conscious college admissions ensure that higher education is visibly open to, and inclusive of, talented and qualified individuals of every race and ethnicity. These two uses of race are not created equal. They are not equally objectionable. Relatedly, Justice Thomas suggests that race-conscious college admissions policies harm racial minorities by increasing affinity-based activities on college campuses. Not only is there no evidence of a causal connection between the use of race in college admissions and the supposed rise of those activities, but Justice Thomas points to no evidence that affinity groups cause any harm. Affinity-based activities actually help racial minorities improve their visibility on college campuses and decrease racial stigma and vulnerability to stereotypes caused by conditions of racial isolation and tokenization. Citing no evidence, Justice Thomas also suggests that race-conscious admissions programs discriminate against Asian American students. It is true that SFFA alleged that Harvard discriminates against Asian American students. Specifically, SFFA argued that Harvard discriminates against Asian American applicants vis-a-vis white applicants through the use of the personal rating, an allegedly highly subjective component of the admissions process that is susceptible to stereotyping and bias. It is also true, however, that there was a lengthy trial to test those allegations, which SFFA lost. Justice Thomas points to no legal or factual error below, precisely because there is none. To begin, this part of SFFA's discrimination claim does not even fall under the strict scrutiny framework in Grutter and its progeny, which concerns the use of racial classifications. The personal rating is a facially race-neutral component of Harvard's admissions policy. Therefore, even assuming for the sake of argument that Harvard engages in racial discrimination through the personal rating, there is no connection between that rating and the remedy that SFFA sought and that the majority grants today ending the limited use of race in the entire admissions process. In any event, 
after assessing the credibility of fact witnesses and considering extensive documentary evidence and expert testimony, the courts below found no discrimination against Asian Americans. There is no question that the Asian American community continues to struggle against potent and dehumanizing stereotypes in our society. It is precisely because racial discrimination persists in our society, however, that the use of race in college admissions to achieve racially diverse classes is critical to improving cross-racial understanding and breaking down racial stereotypes. Indeed, the record shows that some Asian American applicants are actually advantaged by Harvard's use of race, and eliminating consideration of race would significantly disadvantage at least some Asian American applicants. Race-conscious, holistic admissions that contextualize the racial identity of each individual allow Asian American applicants who would be less likely to be admitted without a comprehensive understanding of their background to explain the value of their unique background, heritage, and perspective. Because the Asian American community is not a monolith, race-conscious, holistic admissions allow colleges and universities to consider the vast differences within that community. Harvard's application files show that race-conscious, holistic admissions allow Harvard to value the diversity of Asian American applicants' experiences. Moreover, the admission rates of Asian Americans at institutions with race-conscious admissions policies, including at Harvard, have been steadily increasing for decades. By contrast, Asian American enrollment declined at elite universities that are prohibited by state law from considering race. At bottom, race-conscious admissions benefit all students, including racial minorities. That includes the Asian American community. Finally, Justice Thomas belies reality by suggesting that experts and elites with views similar to those that motivated Dred Scott and Plessy are the ones who support race-conscious admissions. The plethora of young students of color who testified in favor of race consciousness proves otherwise. Not a single student, let alone any racial minority, affected by the court's decision testified in favor of SFFA in these cases. Section C in its radical claim to power, the court does not even acknowledge the important reliance interests that this court's precedents have generated. Significant rights and expectations will be affected by today's decision nonetheless. Those interests supply added force in favor of stare decisis. Students of all backgrounds have formed settled expectations that universities with race-conscious policies will provide diverse, cross-cultural experiences that will better prepare them to excel in our increasingly diverse world. 
respondents, and other colleges and universities with race-conscious admissions programs similarly have concrete reliance interests because they have spent significant resources in an effort to comply with this court's precedents. Universities have designed courses that draw on the benefits of a diverse student body, hired faculty whose research is enriched by the diversity of the student body, and promoted their learning environments to prospective students who have enrolled based on the understanding that they could obtain the benefits of diversity of all kinds. Universities also have expended vast financial and other resources in training thousands of application readers on how to faithfully apply this court's guardrails on the use of race in admissions. Yet today's decision abruptly forces them to fundamentally alter their admissions practices. As to Title VI in particular, Colleges and universities have relied on Grutter for decades in accepting federal funds. The court's failure to weigh these reliance interests is a stunning indictment of its decision. Part 4 The use of race in college admissions has had profound consequences by increasing the enrollment of underrepresented minorities on college campuses. This court presupposes that segregation is a sin of the past and that race-conscious college admissions have played no role in the progress society has made. The fact that affirmative action in higher education has worked and is continuing to work is no reason to abandon the practice today. Experience teaches that the consequences of today's decision will be destructive. The two lengthy trials below simply confirmed what we already knew. Superficial colorblindness in a society that systemically segregates opportunity will cause a sharp decline in the rates at which underrepresented minority students enroll in our nation's colleges and universities, turning the clock back and undoing the slow yet significant progress already achieved. After California amended its state constitution to prohibit race-conscious college admissions in 1996, for example, freshman enrollees from underrepresented minority groups dropped precipitously in California public universities. The decline was particularly devastating at California's most selective campuses, where the rates of admission of underrepresented groups dropped by 50% or more. At the University of California, Berkeley, a top public university, not just in California, but also nationally, the percentage of black students in the freshman class dropped from 6.32% in 1995 to 3.37% in 1998. Latino representation similarly dropped from 15.57% to 7.28% during that period at Berkeley, even though Latinos represented 31% of California public high school graduates. To this day, the student population at California universities 
still reflects a persistent inability to increase opportunities for all racial groups. For example, as of 2019, the proportion of black freshmen at Berkeley was 2.76%, well below the pre-constitutional amendment level in 1996, which was 6.32%. Latinos composed about 15% of freshman students at Berkeley in 2019, despite making up 52% of all California public high school graduates. The costly result of today's decision harms not just respondents and students, but also our institutions and democratic society more broadly. Dozens of amici from nearly every sector of society agree that the absence of race-conscious college admissions will decrease the pipeline of racially diverse college graduates to crucial professions. Those amici include the United States, which emphasizes the need for diversity in the nation's military and in the federal workforce more generally. The United States explains that the nation's military strength and readiness depend on a pipeline of officers who are both highly qualified and racially diverse, and who have been educated in diverse environments that prepare them to lead increasingly diverse forces. That is true not just at the military service academies, but at civilian universities, including Harvard, that host reserve officers' training corps, ROTC programs, and educate students who go on to become officers. Top former military leaders agree. Indeed, history teaches that racial diversity is a national security imperative. During the Vietnam War, for example, lack of racial diversity threatened the integrity and performance of the nation's military because it fueled perceptions of racial and ethnic minorities serving as cannon fodder for white military leaders. Based on lessons from decades of battlefield experience, it has been the long-standing military judgment across administrations that racial diversity is essential to achieving a mission-ready military and to ensuring the nation's ability to compete, deter, and win in today's increasingly complex global security environment. The majority recognizes the compelling need for diversity in the military and the national security implications at stake, but it ends race-conscious college admissions at civilian universities, implicating those interests anyway. Amiki also tell the court that race-conscious college admissions are critical for providing equitable and effective public services. State and local governments require public servants educated in diverse environments who can identify, understand, and respond to perspectives in our increasingly diverse communities. Likewise, increasing the number of students from underrepresented backgrounds who join the ranks of medical professionals improves health care access and health outcomes in medically underserved communities. So, too, greater diversity within the teacher workforce improves student academic achievement 
in primary public schools. A diverse pipeline of college graduates also ensures a diverse legal profession, which demonstrates that the justice system serves the public in a fair and inclusive manner. Examples of other industries and professions that benefit from race-conscious college admissions abound. American businesses emphasize that a diverse workforce improves business performance, better serves a diverse consumer marketplace, and strengthens the overall American economy. A diverse pipeline of college graduates also improves research by reducing bias and increasing group collaboration. It creates a more equitable and inclusive media industry that communicates diverse viewpoints and perspectives. It also drives innovation in an increasingly global science and technology industry. Today's decision further entrenches racial inequality by making these pipelines to leadership roles less diverse. A college degree, particularly from an elite institution, carries with it the benefit of powerful networks and the opportunity for socioeconomic mobility. Admission to college is therefore often the entry ticket to top jobs in workplaces where important decisions are made. The overwhelming majority of members of Congress have a college degree. So do most business leaders. Indeed, many state and local leaders in North Carolina attended college in the UNC system. More than half of judges on the North Carolina Supreme Court and Court of Appeals graduated from the UNC system, for example, and nearly a third of the governor's cabinet attended UNC. A less diverse pipeline to these top jobs accumulates wealth and power unequally across racial lines, exacerbating racial disparities in a society that already dispenses prestige and privilege based on race. The court ignores the dangerous consequences of an America where its leadership does not reflect the diversity of the people. A system of government that visibly lacks a path to leadership open to every race cannot withstand scrutiny in the eyes of the citizenry. Gross disparity in representation leads the public to wonder whether they can ever belong in our nation's institutions, including this one, and whether those institutions work for them. By ending race-conscious college admissions, this court closes the door of opportunity that the court's precedents helped open to young students of every race. It creates a leadership pipeline that is less diverse than our increasingly diverse society, reserving positions of influence, affluence, and prestige in America for a predominantly white pool of college graduates. At its core, today's decision exacerbates segregation and diminishes the inclusivity of our nation's institutions in service of superficial neutrality that promotes indifference to inequality and ignores the reality of race.
true equality of educational opportunity in racially diverse schools is an essential component of the fabric of our democratic society. It is an interest of the highest order and a foundational requirement for the promotion of equal protection under the law. Brown recognized that passive race neutrality was inadequate to achieve the constitutional guarantee of racial equality in a nation where the effects of segregation persist. In a society where race continues to matter, there is no constitutional requirement that institutions attempting to remedy their legacies of racial exclusion must operate with a blindfold. Today, this court overrules decades of precedent and imposes a superficial rule of race blindness on the nation. The devastating impact of this decision cannot be overstated. The majority's vision of race neutrality will entrench racial segregation in higher education because racial inequality will persist so long as it is ignored. Notwithstanding this court's actions, however, society's progress toward equality cannot be permanently halted. Diversity is now a fundamental American value, housed in our varied and multicultural American community that only continues to grow. The pursuit of racial diversity will go on. Although the court has stripped out almost all uses of race in college admissions, universities can and should continue to use all available tools to meet society's needs for diversity in education. Despite the court's unjustified exercise of power, the opinion today will serve only to highlight the court's own impotence in the face of an America whose cries for equality resound. As has been the case before in the history of American democracy, the arc of the moral universe will bend toward racial justice despite the court's efforts today to impede its progress. We've come to the end of the opinion. Until next episode, Thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.